Owen Gino McCormick was in the H-blocks of Long Cash with Michael Devine. From the Craigan and Derry City, Michael was the last of the hunger strikers to die in 1981. In this Guhina Octawahian podcast, we hear about Red Mick, as he was known, his politics and the circumstances that motivated him to join the armed struggle. Red Mick was sentenced in June 1977. Um, he had 10 years and I had been sentenced in May 1977. So um, the first week that I was in, in the blocks, I was in H4 and then I was moved across into H5. And H5 then became the main blanket block. Um, they were, they were, during that summer recess, as they used to call it, the courts were closed from June to September. Uh, nobody really more arrived on, so they were all, basically everybody was together in, in H5. And I was in D-Wing in H5, and Mickey was in A-Wing in H5. So that meant that uh, in terms of, of meeting them, although and we knew obviously that he had arrived uh, into the block, uh, I knew who he was, I knew who he had been charged with. He was charged with Patsy O'Hara, uh, who died on hunger strike as well. And Patsy, Patsy's brother, Tony, was in, a, in the wing with me and had, had gone through remand with me. So I, I missed out on Red Mick and the Crumb, but by the time he got to Black, we both started off in the blanket within a couple of weeks, each other really within a couple of weeks uh, of, of arriving for that, say that summer recess. Um, and for the first while, although he was there and although people knew that he was an ordinary man, so obviously Anthony and Keogh and all of that, you know, you, you, but he wasn't going to be bringing me any extra news in. Uh, maybe a year later, you might have swamped him in the canteen looking for news or scale or whatever, but because he was arriving there basically at the same time as us, uh, and uh, he was, Remick was, was obviously with the Arabs, he was an ALA man, um, and so at, at Mass and Sundays they would have been colluding and congregating under, under among themselves. Tony O'Hara obviously would have been, and then you would have got news coming back second hand, then you know, from Tony or whatever, whatever news had come. Patsy, as it happened, had been charged with Red Mick, uh, but beat the charges and got off at that time. It was later that Patsy came back in again uh, to, to be sentenced in the blocks, like it was maybe two years after that before he was sentenced. So that was my first sort of um, meeting with Red Mick and knowing one of his existence in the, in the blocks, if you like. So, uh, although I didn't know Red Mick uh, outside of prison, um, my my father's people are from a village called Ardmore, which is three miles from Derry, and um, Red Mick's mother was from from Ardmore. So, although, like I said, this was later and later on that you would have learned these things, you know, about Red Mick, but the family had, had lived in Ardmore right up to before uh, Mickey was born, and then they moved across and, and they sprang to camp and, and squatted. In the Springtown camp. Now, Springtown camp, um, he described it himself, and I'm sure he wasn't the first person to describe it as a slum of all slums. It, it was really, really poor housing conditions. Um, and, you know, even thinking of the word slum, we don't, you don't hear people talking about slums uh, in Ireland anymore. Uh, there are still slums, obviously, around the world, like favelas in, in Brazil and places like that, or, or slums in shanty towns and so on. But this was a shanty town. This was, and it was. Um, about maybe three miles from the centre of Derry, the city itself, out at the edge of the town. Um, and it was an area, Springtown, the, the name gives it away, it was an area prone to flooding and, and the springs that had been coming up. The the huts that they were living in were former American uh, Air Force huts from the Second World War. Now, if the conditions were rough and ready during the Second World War, they were a lot worse by the time it came to the 1960s. And ironically enough, uh, that 
whole housing uh, problem that existed there was the, the it was the condition and an education for Red Mick and for an awful lot of our people of that generation because it was com coming from protests against uh, Springtime Camp that you had uh, the Dairy Housing Action Committee and the Dairy Civil Rights Movement grew up out of that and then the, that became obviously part of the, the, the National Civil Rights Movement from October onwards of that year. Um, and I thought, I, you know, when I was thinking about Red Mick, there's, a, there's a, a funny wee irony in there as well in terms of that housing conditions driving something on towards it. The, the, the wing at Mick was sentenced in they also had a, a guy called Francie Gildernew, and now Francie would be an uncle of, of Michelle uh, Gildernew, and the Gildernews were also involved in this housing action because it was there that, that uh, one of the Gildernews had, had squatted in the house that was the, the catalyst of the for that early civil rights movement, the first marches in Coal Island, the Dungannon and so on. And so Francie Gildernew and Red Mick are in the same wing together. And maybe these, these sort of links didn't mean anything to them at the time, but they mean in my mind all these things kind of come come from somewhere, you know. So the same Mick was growing up in Springtown Camp, really, really poor conditions. There were all our dairymen that ended up in jail that also came from, from Springtown Camp. I think of Patty O'Carroll as, as an example from Derry as well. And uh, as I say, that was an education by very living in these sort of housing, housing conditions. By the time of uh, 1968 and the beginning of the civil rights, Mickey was already living in Craigan. They had, they had moved out uh, of Springtown Camp and they were living up in Craigan. Um, and so all that 68, 69, 70, right through up on the, on the bloody Sunday, you know, you were learning and watching and seeing and being, being subject to harassment by the RUC and then after that, the, the British Army. And that was all, you know, Mickey's formative years. And, you know, in many ways, there's no wonder he ended up in, in the blocks at that stage. By the time Mickey came into jail in, in uh, 1976, he was already married. Um, he had two children, Michael and Louise, but they had a very tragic background. Mickey's family had a real tragedy. His father died when he was about 11 of leukemia. Uh, his mother died whenever he was in his early teens, you know, 14 or 15. Um, and he was, all he had was, was a sister. Uh, as a as a surviving blood blood relative, uh, and that's very unusual because all of the our hunger strikers, you know, had had huge family circles, um, and and people who can carry on the story from generation to generation. But all that Mickey uh, had was was to say a son and a daughter, uh, Michael and Louise, and and so maybe because of that, there's a wee bit more of an enigma about who Mickey Devine was. But, you know, like for example, you could go to, you know, say. Joe McDonald's family and they, they'll have stories about him but we don't really have all of that about Mickey in that sense so a lot of the memories that people have about him are furnished in the, in the life that he spent in jail you know now obviously he had friends outside and he worked and we know all these sort of small facts but that very personal sort of history um, as I say it's a tragic story in the background there of, of his own family Loss and and that they all he had as a say was a sister as a, as a family blood relative at the time of the you know so but it's they're they're there and, and you know obviously it would be in our thoughts as well. So Mickey was, was nicknamed Red Mick and some people say it was because of his politics and some people say it was because of his hair and it was probably somewhere and the both were were, were giving him this name of Red Mick because he did have very very you know gingery hair. Um, he, he wasn't a huge person, you know, sort of a standout figure or anything like that, but he, but he was very political um, and very uh, well read and, and very eager to be involved in debates and talking to people who were in the wing 
uh, with Mickey, all the wings in there that, in, during the blocks were, were all cauldrons of, of uh, political discussion and political argument and, and, and political fighting and, and so on about thoughts and theories and all of the rest of it. And he was very much involved in all of that. He, 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 he took part in that. And as I say, he was well read. He was, he was well enough informed in his views. He had been in the Stiggies before he joined the ANLA or the, APL, or the PLA, as it, it may have been at the beginning. Um, so, you know, probably the Stiggies uh, are, are considered in some way that they would have had a more of a political um, um, education going on or whatever, and Mickey would have been part of that as well. So he, he brought that politics with him. Um, he was a sort of an unashamed communist, you know, this is the sort of thing. And uh, so all the better for it in the blocks where, where people were, were quite prepared to discuss and debate. And, you know, some of the debates went wild. I remember one particular person talking about churches being turned into bingo halls as part of the, the resolution, the revolution. And, you know, all this sort of thing was going on. But so there was a lightheartedness and there was a serious part of it as well, because we were learning very very quickly i don't think whenever whenever the, the blanket protest began we knew we weren't criminals we knew we weren't going to be criminalized but all of the the sort of isms you know the and and the, then of course the the ostracization and the normalization and the criminalization hadn't really been welded together on our heads at that stage it was maybe a year later before before people started to analyze as to what exactly the Brits were driving at by trying to take away political status. You know, it wasn't just a, a vendetta to make our time hard. You know, this was part of a big strategy that they had uh, of criminalization, being part of the Australization and the normalization. Uh, so all that debating would have been going on, might have been part of it. On the other hand, you know, it was also uh, um, a bit of a life and soul in the wing as well, and involved in, in, in entertaining the wing and taking part in, in uh, quizzes um, and he did a lot of writing uh, as well. I know he, he wrote poems right up to the time of going on hunger strike. He, he read a poem right prior to that. Um, but it, in our wing, although Mickey wasn't in our wing, we remembered him mostly on account of quizzes that he had that he had put together, and then quizzes were shared. You know, you, you may have got a toilet roll full of quiz questions written for the following week that the next wing could use, and vice versa. We would have sent stuff back, uh, and also for a pantomime that he had. Uh, that he wrote in must have been Christmas 1977 that they put together a wing pantomime. No, Christmas 78, they put together this wing pantomime himself and P.O. Garrity, who's not an order prisoner in the wing from Belfast. And uh, it, it mightn't be politically correct nowadays, they said, but there were ugly sisters in the in the, the, the particular pantomime. And um, I think the dark uh, John Nixon, Nixie, and Tony Quigley from Derry were the three ugly sisters, as far as I remember. Um, so as I say, that may not have been correct nowadays, but that would have been the thing. And that, that pantomime went down in sort of folklore of, of the black pen as well, obviously a Christmas pantomime. Um, so he was well liked in that sense, you know, and he took part in what was going on. Himself and Shondo, although it was P.O. Gerdy that he, they wrote the pantomime, but himself and Shondo, uh, uh, who's obviously died now as well for Shondo, like, but um, they were a kind of a foil off each other as well for, for, for quizzes and crack and so on and so forth. They did a lot of stuff together. And Shondo still had that personality, of course, after, after he got out, he was still recognised as, a, you know, Shondo, best of crack and so on, you know, so that would have been around back in the wing. The, the bank of protest at the beginning was, was, was boring. You know, you, we were locked up all the time. We didn't have clothes, very little to read, um, few religious books and things like that. Lives of the Saints, much trophied and fought after, like, but it really wasn't the most inspiring reading that you were going to get. But uh, 
by the time the No Eyes protest began in 1978, I think for the, for the maybe two month period of every every Monday morning, there was something new taking place. You know, we were escalating and escalating, and we were all excited and, and terrified at the same time, I suppose, because it was, it was getting more and more difficult. But we knew that we had to, you know, force it onwards and onwards and onwards. By 1979, um, there was definite talk about a hunger strike uh, that was, was common and it was. It, all the other tools were used at this stage. It didn't happen in 1979, but by 1980, obviously the hunger strike, uh, the first hunger strike began in October that year. And Red Mick was one of the, the group of people who went on to the second batch of that hunger strike. Uh, he would have been on it for, I think it may have been three or four days, five days, maybe I can't remember the exact length of time now, uh, that the second batch of, of 30 went on um, towards the end, maybe, maybe around maybe the 14th of December or something like that. So, um, Pachahara was the, was the uh, sorry, Nixie was was the, the OC of the ILA, and then uh, when Nixie went on the hunger strike, Patsy took over uh, from him. And there was a sort of a period in between, I think, whenever Tony O'Hara may have taken over from his brother Patsy as the OC, but then he didn't want to be the OC because because Patsy was going on hunger strike, he felt it was too, too onerous of responsibility for his own brother. So Red Mick became the OC as far as we were aware then at, at that stage. Um, so <clears throat> the, the, the ILA didn't have that many prisoners in the block in, in terms of numbers. So it was no surprise that there were um, a smaller proportion of, of the number of people going on, on the hunger strike. But was there an expectation that Mickey would have went on it? I don't know. I can't, I can't, it's very hard for me to answer that now thinking back, but it was no surprise, you know, uh, to, to put it another way. In terms of that whole duration of the hunger strike, I, I, was, I had the radio for, for our wing uh, during that time. And the radio, it, it was a kind of a, it was an albatross, really, because you, you were the person getting the, the worst of the news first, you know, before anybody. And, you know, I'm thinking about children getting killed by plastic bullets outside and, and all, you know, that, tragedy that was going on as well plus of course the hunger strikers conditions being deteriorating you got the elation news like for example when bobby was elected uh i had, I had the news as it was i came in live news listening to it and <laughs> broke all the prison rules that day they, they, they hear uh live and that sense of great elation but then that sense of, of deflation then that, that would come straight after and as, as the hunger strikers you know one after an hour died I don't know, you know that, that expression by each too long a sacrifice makes a stone of the heart. And uh, it wasn't that, that we became any less uh, um, attached to the, to the men that were dying, right? You, you were broken hearted at every single one of them. Uh, and maybe you were more broken hearted about people that you knew personally. So Joe McDonald, for example, it was, in, it was in our wing. I mean, that took a, a lump out of everybody's hearts in the wing. Um, uh, 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 as did all of the other deaths, obviously, and, you know, because I knew all of the, the hunger strikers through remand and that, uh, or, or through through meeting them in the blocks, you know. And by the time um, Mickey died at the end of August, I mean, you're talking about a, a period of time when everybody was absolutely, utterly wiped by what was going on. It really, really was a wipeout, you know, of, of, of emotions and and still after Mickey died, still people went on to the hunger strike. There were there were another five people uh, joined the hunger strike in, in the weeks after Mickey died. The hunger strike didn't didn't end until October, um, and and would have gone on, you know. It just and it really it, it, to this day it still tears a heart out of 
you know, not thinking about all of them. Um, there are no sort of, you know, uh, terrible ordeals, there were no hierarchies of hunger strikers. They were all the, the comrades that we had been in there with, you know. So how did we feel about, about it? That's how we felt about it. And that's, that's how people feel about it this day. And it's not a unique thing to people that were in jail. I know people that were never inside the, 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 the jails at all, weren't even born at that time. And still when they think of that level of, of what people, the, the, the men and women went through that were on hunger strike and then obviously the people that died, you know, a terrible, terrible loss. But at the same time, <clears throat> it was something that um, I don't think any of them went into, um, you know, blind. They, they, they knew all of what was, was lay at the end of it. They knew the, the whole route of that journey, particularly after uh, the number of people who had died by the time Mick joined it in June. Uh, there were there were already six hunger strikers dead at that stage uh, when when McAdivine joined the hunger strike. So that that level of courage and, and heroism and, and self sacrifices, you know, it just leaves you in awe, I have to say. But uh, <clears throat> I suppose it must have been maybe uh, ten years after the the hunger strikes ended. Uh, I got out in eighteen ninety one, so it's ten years ten years after the hunger strikes ended. Um, but just prior to that. Um, the, the the first sort of reflections and memories started to get gathered in what eventually became the book that regularly served my time. And uh, it was really, really raw uh, time to be writing. We, we were still in the cells that we had been in at the time of the deaths. And, uh, and, and you know, I don't know how much I wrote for that book, but I know that the pieces that, that were published by myself and by other people in that book, that there was a fair mixture there of uh, the lighthearted as, as well as the heavy, because I think that's probably how, how people become psychologists here, but maybe people have to try and find something to, to, to bring them through, something like that, which is okay. Then, you know, going on to maybe around 20 years uh, after the hunger strikes, there was an hour period of, of reflection and, and I remember at the time I, I was really, I was on the road a lot uh, and going and speaking at places and people were looking to find out about the hunger strike and looking to find out about, about the present campaigns and, and, and uh, you know, what happened and because a new generation was coming through. And it's really strange you now that 40 years that possibly the audiences that are that are now reading and listening to the horse track weren't even born they did and you know and you're talking about a completely different thing so you need to really i, I say you be, I mean prisoners need to, need to be careful in the sense that that it there's no way you can trivialize it you know in a sense but but it wouldn't I wouldn't like it all to be all the good stories. There, there was a very serious uh, uh, side to it. And I'm not talking about side of deaths, obviously, that was most serious. But the struggle was a serious, serious thing to be going through at that time in the jails. And, you know, there was, there was brutality, plenty of that there. I think, you, you, you know, the stories are well told about all of that there. But there was another side then, and that was the building that took place, how people built strength from one another. None, none of us sat down and tried to plan that out, you know, but, but that's what we did do in the end up, you know. And you hear people talking about these bonds um, that, that will never be broken, and they're probably, they're definitely there. Uh, you meet people and you start, you know, yarning and anecdotes and all that. But I think that the strength in building up is wider than that sort of, you know, colloquial bit of a uh, humour side of it, right? It's the fact that there's a big sort of generation now of 60-somethings out there, right? 
70 something, maybe some of them are. And I was actually talking to a man last night who's in the cell with me and he's 80, you know. And they all went through that whole thing together, right? That uh, prison protest together. And then when they come out at the other end of it, somebody said to me, lately, what did you do when you got your clothes? You know, what, what was that like? I'll tell you, did you see the, the first day that we got our clothes at the end of, of the horse? It was about a week maybe after the horse second of our clothes started, you know, being allowed into the parcel thing. There was a sense of guilt. There was a sense of, you know, what am I doing? Um, going over to turn on a radio, going, you know, writing a letter, picking up a book. There was for a short period of time that sense of, of um, survivor guilt. I suppose it would be called why did I survive and somebody else didn't type thing. Um, and then the next few years then were, were about learning from the horse tracks and building up a community in, in the jail and, and as I say, building up all of this sort of strength and, and camaraderie and then bringing it with you there outside. Now, I'm, most of my life nowadays is spent in the Irish language, you know, working with, with, between schools and, and helping, thankfully, I'm very, very proud of the fact money isn't they, they help set up a few schools over the years and, and, and carrying on that sort of education side. Our people are involved in, you know, electoral politics and being representative politicians and so on. But no matter where you go, it's the experience that you learned inside that, that is formative, you know, the ability to be able to sit and, and listen to somebody else's point of view and then trash it <laughs> is what we did in jail, you know, even say, courteously say, you know, I see where you're coming from, but here you're going to, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so we learned an awful lot from that. The the, the memory of the horse records, it's not something that's, that's going to um, go away in, in a generation or two generations or whatever. I mean, we, we do remember all the younger strikers who died over the years, we do clearly, but a lot of them were very, uh, they're icon iconized, um, it was maybe the word is, you know, like you think of McSweeney and, and, and people like this, there's a sort of a, a huge uh, uh, imagery around just Terence McSweeney as, as a hunger striker, whereas the hunger strikers who died in the blocks were people that we grew up with, that we, we knew, that we, that we slagged, that we sang songs with, that we, told lies to you know all of all of that there and that's that's a very human thing to, to be carrying on but i know the people who have never met them are actually able to identify with that as well because of you know the amount of sort of stuff that has now been published through the like of this and uh through normally serve my time and you know books like that and all our people's reflections and memories coming out as well around this time so 40 years <sighs> you know, come back in 50 years and, and you make it the same story. You make it some of the stories a wee bit more rehearsed, you know, because they love to live, you know. But it, it's unlikely at this stage that you're going to get very much new memories, you know, that people now have by this stage. They've had a good chance to think back and remember the people that they knew and the people that died in the cell next door to them, you know, so that'll, that'll be with them.